Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here for tonight's program on the Gist of Freedom. I'd like to remind you that our shows are archived and can be picked up for free via iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Past programs, we've been involved in listening to a reading of the book, The Underground Railroad, by William Steele, um, one of our most recent and popular uh, readings on that was the love story, the cave love story, uh, relative to a gentleman who escaped uh, to freedom and... Uh, risked his life to go back to visit his loved one who was still being held in captivity. Uh, Current events going on uh, here recently. Not sure what uh, there's been any more information or outcome on the lady who uh, ran the barricade there in Washington, D.C. and uh, was killed in a shootout. Well, she was shot. I don't think there was a shootout. I think she was unarmed, uh, but allegedly uh, coming very near the White House of Congress, caused uh, Congress to be closed down for about 30 minutes or so. Understand that there was a uh, a child in the car that she was driving, and uh, if anyone knows any details, please let me know. I also remind you that uh, you should probably send our executive producer, Leslie Guest, a Facebook request. And that's L-E-S-L-E-Y, Guest, G-I-S-T, or to the Guest of Freedom. And um, she is uh, can also be contacted via email at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at thegistoffreedom.com. Moving back to the William Steele book, William Steele was an abolitionist. Uh, The book was published in 1871 and detailed his work and the work of uh, freedom fighters there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in their efforts to help slaves escape the South along the Underground Railroad. 
and um, they provided clothing, shelter, money, food, etc. William Steele is buried in the famous Eden, that's E-D-E-N, cemetery, Philadelphia, PA. And um, he was founder, co-founder of a committee known as the Vigilance Committee there in Philadelphia. And that uh, Eden Cemetery that I mentioned is the oldest black cemetery in the nation. It's currently, it recently has been vandalized and which has the citizens of Philadelphia in an uproar uh, over that recent uh, vandalization. Uh, very famous cemetery. Marian Anderson is buried there in the Eden Cemetery in Philadelphia. And Mary Anderson was an opera singer who was denied uh, the privilege of singing at uh, Constitutional Hall back in the day, which was then operated by the Daughters of the American Revolution, who have now since changed their attitude towards uh, people of color. Uh, Eden is located just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and there are hundreds of freedom fighters uh, buried there, along with other notable blacks. Uh, one I just mentioned was Marian Anderson. Uh, the Mother Bethel Cemetery, also located in uh, Philadelphia area. And Mother Bethel, of course, the Bethel Church. And part of that cemetery was recently discovered on a playground in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In other words, a playground had been built over uh, Mother Bethel Cemetery, where again, another uh, hundreds of blacks uh, are buried. They've been buried there since 1786. And um, Mother Bethel was the first black church Methodist Founded in the United States. And uh, William Still covers a lot of the early freedom fighters in his book, The Underground Railroad. Again, it was published in 1871. And uh, Again, we've had a number of readings uh, from that book. And you can pick those up via iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. And um, we're in the uh, process now of... uh, bring up the preface uh, to that book. And here's an audio of the preface. It's about 13, 15 minutes long. Here we go. Preface. 
of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Preface to the Revised Edition. Like millions of my race, my mother and father were born slaves, but were not contented to live and die so. My father purchased himself in early manhood by hard toil. Mother saw no way for herself and children to escape the horrors of bondage but by flight. Bravely, with her four little ones, with firm faith in God and an ardent desire to be free, she forsook the prison house and succeeded, through the aid of my father, to reach a free state. Her life had to be begun anew. The old familiar slave names had to be changed, and others, for prudential reasons, had to be found. This was not hard work. However, hardly months had passed ere the keen scent of the slave hunters had trailed them to where they had fancied themselves secure. In those days, all power was in the hands of the oppressor, and the capture of a slave mother and her children was attended with no great difficulty other than the crushing of freedom in the breasts of the victims. Without judge or jury, all were hurried back to wear the yoke again, but back this mother was resolved never to stay. She only wanted another opportunity to again strike for freedom. In a few months after being carried back, with only two of her little ones, she took her heart in her hand and her babes in her arms, and this trial was a success. Freedom was gained, although not without the sad loss of her two older children, whom she had to leave behind. Father and mother were again reunited in freedom, while two of their little boys were in slavery. What to do for them, other than weep and pray, were questions unanswerable. For over forty years the mother's heart never knew what it was to be free from anxiety about her lost boys. But no tidings came in answer to her many prayers, until one of them, to the great astonishment of his relatives, turned up in Philadelphia nearly fifty years of age, seeking his long-lost parents. Being directed to the anti-slavery office for instructions as to the best plan to adopt to find out the whereabouts of his parents, fortunately he fell into the hands of his own brother, the writer, whom he had never heard of before, much less seen or known. And here began revelations connected with this marvelous coincidence, which influenced me, for years previous to emancipation, to preserve the matter found in the pages of this humble volume. And in looking back now over these strange and eventful providences, in the light of the wonderful changes wrought by emancipation, I am more and more constrained to believe that the reasons which years ago led me to aid the bondman and preserve the records of his sufferings are today quite as potent in convincing me that the necessity of the times requires this testimony. And since the first advent of my book, wherever reviewed or read by leading friends of freedom, the press, or the race more deeply represented by it, the expressions of approval and encouragement have been hearty and unanimous. 
and the thousands of volumes which have been sold by me on the subscription plan, with hardly any facilities for the work, makes it obvious that it would, in the hands of a competent publisher, have a wide circulation. And here I may frankly state that but for the hope I have always cherished that this work would encourage the race in efforts for self-elevation, its publication never would have been undertaken by me. I believe no more strongly at this moment than I have believed ever since the proclamation of emancipation was made by Abraham Lincoln, that as a class, in this country, no small exertion will have to be put forward before the blessings of freedom and knowledge can be fairly enjoyed by this people, and until colored men manage by dint of hard acquisition to enter the ranks of skilled industry, very little substantial respect will be shown them, even with the ballot-box and musket in their hands. Well-conducted shops and stores, land acquired and good farms managed in a manner to compete with any other, valuable books produced and published on interesting and important subjects, these are some of the fruits which the race are expected to exhibit from their newly gained privileges. If it is asked, how? I answer, through extraordinary determination and endeavor, such as are demonstrated in hundreds of cases in the pages of this book, in the struggles of men and women to obtain their freedom, education, and property. These facts must never be lost sight of. The race must not forget the rock from whence they were hewn, nor the pit from whence they were digged. Like other races, this newly emancipated people will need all the knowledge of their past condition which they can get. The bondage and deliverance of the children of Israel will never be allowed to sink into oblivion while the world stands. Those scenes of suffering and martyrdom millions of Christians were called upon to pass through in the days of the Inquisition are still subjects of study and have unabated interest for all enlightened minds. The same is true of the history of this country. The struggles of the pioneer fathers are preserved, produced, and reproduced, and cherished with undying interest by all Americans. And the day will not arrive while the Republic exists when these histories will not be found in every library. While the grand little army of abolitionists was waging its untiring warfare for freedom prior to the rebellion, no agency encouraged them like the heroism of fugitives. The pulse of the four millions of slaves and their desire for freedom were better felt through the Underground Railroad than through any other channel. Frederick Douglass, Henry Bibb, William Wells Brown, Reverend J. W. Logan, and others gave unmistakable evidence that the race had no more eloquent advocates than its own self-emancipated champions. Every step they took to rid themselves of their fetters, or to gain education, or in pleading the cause of their fellow bondmen in the lecture-room, or with their pens, met with applause on every hand, and the very argument needed was thus furnished in large measure. In those dark days previous to emancipation, such testimony was indispensable. The free colored men are as imperatively required now to furnish the same manly testimony in support of the ability of the race to surmount the remaining obstacles growing out of oppression, ignorance, and poverty. In the political struggles, the hopes of the race have been sadly disappointed. 
from this direction no great advantage is likely to arise very soon. Only as desert can be proved by the acquisition of knowledge and the exhibition of high moral character in examples of economy and a disposition to encourage industrial enterprises conducted by men of their own ranks, will it be possible to make political progress in the face of the present public sentiment. Here, therefore, in my judgment, is the best possible reason for vigorously pushing the circulation of this humble volume, that it may testify for thousands and tens of thousands, as no other work can do. William Still, Author September, 1878 Philadelphia, Pennsylvania The following brief sketch, touching the separation of Peter and his mother, will fitly illustrate this point, and at the same time explain certain mysteries which have been hitherto kept hidden. The Separation With regard to Peter's separation from his mother, when a little boy, in few words, the facts were these. His parents, Levin and Sidney, were both slaves on the eastern shore of Maryland. I will die before I submit to the yoke, was the declaration of his father to his young master before either was twenty-one years of age. Consequently, he was allowed to buy himself at a very low figure, and he paid the required sum and obtained his free papers when quite a young man, the young wife and mother remaining in slavery under Saunders Griffin, as also her children, the latter having increased to the number of four, two little boys and two little girls. But to escape from chains, stripes, and bondage, she took her four little children and fled to a place near Greenwich, New Jersey. Not a great while, however, did she remain there in the state of freedom before the slave hunters pursued her, and one night they pounced upon the whole family, and without judge or jury hurried them all back to slavery. Whether this was kidnapping or not is for the reader to decide for himself. Safe back in the hands of her owner, to prevent her from escaping a second time, every night for about three months she was cautiously kept locked up in the garret, until, as they supposed, she was fully cured of the desire to do so again. But she was incurable. She had been a witness to the fact that her own father's brains had been blown out by the discharge of a heavily loaded gun, deliberately aimed at his head by his drunken master. She only needed half a chance to make still greater struggles for even greater freedom. She had faith in God, and found much solace in singing some of the good old Methodist tunes by day and night. Her owner, Observing this apparently tranquil state of mind, indicating that she seemed better contented than ever, concluded that it was safe to let the garret door remain unlocked at night. Not many weeks were allowed to pass before she resolved to again make a bold strike for freedom. This time she had to leave the two little boys, Levin and Peter, behind. On the night she started, she went to the bed where they were sleeping, kissed them, and, consigning them to the hands of God, bade her mother good-bye, and with her two little girls wended her way again to Burlington County, New Jersey, but to a different neighborhood from that where she had been seized. She changed her name to Charity, and succeeded in again joining her husband. But, alas, with a heartbreaking thought that she had been compelled to leave her two little boys in slavery and one of the little girls on the road for her father to go back after. Thus she began life in freedom anew. Levin and Peter eight and six years of age respectively, were now left at the mercy of the enraged owner, and were soon hurried off to a southern market and sold, while their mother, for whom they were daily weeping, was they knew not where. 
They were too young to know that they were slaves or to understand the nature of the afflicting separation. Sixteen years before Peter's return, his older brother, Levin, died a slave in the state of Alabama and was buried by the surviving brother, Peter. No idea other than that they had been kidnapped from their mother ever entered into their minds, nor had they any knowledge of the state from whence they supposedly had been taken, the last names of their mother or father, or where they were born. On the other hand, the mother was aware that the safety of herself and her rescued children depended on keeping the whole transaction a strict family secret. During the forty years of separation, except for two or three Quaker friends, including the devoted friend of the slave, Benjamin Lundy, it is doubtful whether any other individuals were let into the secret of her slave life. And when the account given of Peter's return, etc., was published in 1850, it led some of the family to apprehend serious danger from the partial revelation of the early condition of the mother, especially as it was about the time that the Fugitive Slave Law was passed. Hence, the author of The Kidnapped and the Ransomed was compelled to admit these dangerous facts and had to confine herself strictly to the personal recollections of Peter Still with regard to his being kidnapped. Likewise, in a sketch of Seth Conklin's eventful life, written by Mr. W. H. Furness, for similar reasons, he felt obliged to make but bare reference to his wonderful agency in relation to Peter's family, although he was fully aware of all the facts in the case. I just uh, concluded a reading of uh, the preface and a little bit about um, Peter Steele from the book, William Steele's book, The Underground Railroad. Uh, quite a lot of information um, given to us in that uh, preface where William Steele's parents were born slaves, born into slavery. And the father acquired enough money to purchase his own freedom and had to leave the, his wife and four children in slavery. Uh, we also noticed that there was a necessity change one's name after having escaped from slavery, and that was to avoid the bounty hunters, slave hunters, that were naturally on one's uh, uh, trail during that time, and uh, unfortunately, um, although the mother was left behind, she endeavored to escape and endeavored to do that with four children, two boys and two girls, and uh, made her way to New Jersey. Um, but again, the slave hunters were on her trail and caught up with her and uh, in New Jersey, and she was taken back south into slavery. And uh, the owner, her owner was so irate that she would dare attempt an escape from freedom, locked her up for three solid months, wouldn't let her out, uh, afraid that she might uh, again attempt to uh, escape slavery. And after three months or so, he was confident that she... Uh, was uh, cured of a disease at that time that was known as drapetomania. 
Drake Tomania uh, was considered to be a slave disease uh, that affected cats and blacks uh, and that they uh, attempted to escape and go north and that it became um, more insidious after they were exposed to the north. If they got anywhere near the north, uh, the drapomania would kick in and that they would do it again. And so that required, uh, in this case, the slave owner uh, wanting to lock her up so that she would not fall victim to drapomania. And uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, she was not cured, although he thought she was, that she had got it out of her system because she started singing hymns, old Negro spirituals and whatnot, and, uh, which was probably a staged performance on her part uh, to lull him into the belief that she had been cured. And, of course, he made a mistake and started leaving the door open at nighttime but her resolve was just as strong as it was at her initial uh, flight, and she fled again. However, this time, she fled with her two daughters, and uh, not really wanting to, but felt that it was necessary to leave her two sons uh, with the slave master. She thought that her her plight would be better served if it was just she and her two daughters. And again, she fled to New Jersey, Burlington County, New Jersey. And uh, her son, Peter, he was eight years old at the time, thought that he had been kidnapped from New Jersey or Philadelphia. And uh, he wrote a book and he entitled his book The Kidnapped and the Ransom. Kidnapped and the Ransom. So he paid for his freedom and his Peter uh, some 40 years later uh, during the interim, his he and his younger brother had been sold uh, into slavery. Uh, the owner was so irate, he uh, sold him into slavery into Alabama. And Peter buried his younger brother there. And uh, 40 years later, after buying his freedom, uh, Peter went to Philadelphia seeking his mother. And... Once in Philadelphia, he was directed to the chronicler of the Underground Railroad. And unbeknownst to him and to the chronicler, he was making contact. He was met by his baby brother. And that baby brother, who was 
born free was none other than William Steele. Surely a meeting brought about by Providence. Surely brought about by Providence. And that Peter's uh, attempt to find his mother, he found his brother who had been born free. And uh, I imagine that was quite a reunion quite a joyous reunion having met him for the first time in about 1850 there in Philadelphia. We know the significance of 1850. That was the year that the fugitive slave law was passed. And this was the second fugitive slave law that had been passed, which required anyone having any knowledge of an escaped slave was required to take that slave into custody, take him to the magistrate or to the sheriff, and then the sheriff then would put that individual in jail and wait for the slaveholders to catch up. So we can see that this was a very treacherous time uh, or Peter. He was so desperate, he um, he risked publicizing his story in a book in search for his long-lost family to get reacquainted with his own family. And that certainly put him at great risk because of the 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Law. Um, his own sons and daughters um, were unaware. And uh, he used that money uh, from the book sales to raise money for his sons and daughters' freedom. Uh, William Steele, however, was against the book because of the, the danger of that information getting out, and which would force them then to have to contend uh, with the slave catchers. And it was also uh, risked his own mother's freedom, who by this time had changed her name to Charity, uh, who had been enslaved. Charity Sydney should changed her name. So William Steele was not a, a happy camper uh, relative to um, Peter putting that book out, and he wanted uh, Peter to go through the Underground Railroad without much fanfare or publicity and whatnot because it would stir up a hornet's nest uh, William Steele didn't publish his own book until after 1871. And uh, and his book contained the preservation of records of all his work uh, with the Underground Railroad. 
Oliver Peter published his book in 1850. Excuse me, folks. Yeah, Peter published his book in 1850, risking everyone involved. not only his own family, William Steele's family and whatnot, but families of others, uh, giving slave catchers and slave hunters the idea of where other escaped slaves may be living, that may be in contact uh, with the Steele family, etc. So that way they might be able to pinpoint uh, a community of blacks there in the Philadelphia area that might be harboring uh, runaway slaves. And they had the 1850 fugitive slave law working in their favor. Um, So capturing anyone and just claiming that they were enslaved slaves didn't have to offer too much proof. Um, If one was without monumental papers, stating that they were free, then they could be locked up, have a very quick uh, court hearing. And by the way, the justices and the judges during that time uh, were paid. If one was returned to slavery, you were paid, for example, $16. If the individual was acquitted, you were paid $12. So you can see that there was an incentive, a monetary uh, incentive to uh, return uh, any escaped slave to bondage. During that 1850, Peter, um, who was known as Peter Gist, uh, capitulated. He published the book, but he capitulated by dropping the name Gist, G-I-S-T. Uh, we had a number of small Civil War skirmishes broke out in the protest of preventing uh, bounty hunters from kidnapping blacks. And as I indicated earlier, uh, they used the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law as a pretext, and that way they could kidnap uh, any free black and return them to slavery which kind of reminds us of the stop and frisk laws that we see today across the United States. Uh, Stand your ground laws where anyone in authority can stop any person of color and require them to explain why they are where they are at this particular time. Uh, Which reminds me that there's a new movie coming out well, we will be discussing uh, 12 Years of Slaves. It was written by Solomon Narset, who was kidnapped in the Washington, D.C. area. His descendant, Clayton Adams, will be my guest this coming Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, here on The Guest of Freedom. Solomon Narset was a free man, In fact, he was born free, and he got tricked into going willingly uh, with some bounty hunters who had promised him some work as a violinist. Uh, 
Solomon Northup was an accomplished violinist, and they promised him work. But when it turned out, he wound up being enslaved for 12 years in the state of uh, Louisiana. Twelve long years, free man, born into slavery. I mean, born free, taken into slavery. Left a wife and children. And his wife uh, eventually petitioned the governor of uh, the governor of New York to use the liberty, liberty laws of the 1700s to free him. And the liberty laws, of course, said that no man, no free man, no free black could be kidnapped and taken into slavery. And she extolled the governor of New York to use the liberty laws. Well, the New York governor started out doing that, but then it became a uh, question as to whether he was kidnapped in New York or whether he was kidnapped in Washington, D.C. area. This film is going to premiere here pretty soon, around October the 18th. And we would really like for our listeners of the Gifts of Freedom to get out and support this film, 12 Years uh, in Slavery. Uh, this is a movie that is unlike The Help, uh, The Butler, uh, Django, um, this film is based on a book written by a black man and written about his experience. This movie is being directed by a black man who's taking up this story and bringing it to film. Uh, blacks will be portrayed throughout the film, the leading characters, the leading stars, etc. Black folks. So this is a movie written by a black man, directed by a black man, and starring black folks coming to you. Other films were directed by uh, people not of color. Django, for example, was uh, directed by Tarantino. Uh, and uh, the fact of slavery then was reduced to entertainment and somewhat fictionalized, some blazing six guns. And, uh, but now we have a story, a film coming to uh, the silver screen depicting the truth about slavery. The other film, for example, uh, The Help and uh, The Butler, were depicting black folks as servants. And, uh, but here, uh, now the film, 12 Years a Slave, shows the tragedy, shows the man being free and then the tragedy of going into slavery, detailing his life through those 12 years of slavery, depicting the courage of his wife, uh, uh, petitioning for his freedom, and his freedom eventually won. His return to his family. Um, this film is directed by a black Brit, British person, and it's coming out during the UK's Black History Month. And uh, again, we want our listeners, our supporters, the gifts of freedom 
be sure uh, to get out and uh, support this film. And of course, in Hollywood, the way they rate these films is on money. Tickets bought. So we got to get out, folks. Support this film by buying tickets to show them, to show Hollywood that these kind of stories matter. That we as black folks, and you white folks too, okay, that this we are willing and want to support uh, these kind of films. Um, again, you can get to Leslie Gitt's Facebook page. She's posting information about the UK. She's also posted on my page, Preston Washington. Send me a uh, friend request. Let me know that you heard this through the gift of freedom. And uh, she's posted there about Ignatius Sancho, who was the first black person of African origin to vote in parliamentary elections in Britain in 1774-1780. Take a look at the post at L.E.S.L.E.Y. Guest. Uh, If it's black history you want, it's Leslie Guest that you need to be in contact with. Because the lady endeavors to really get it out there. Yeah, black man, Brent, voting in the 1700s. Now, who knew that? Who understood that? Who knew about that history? There. Uh, who knew about the history of blacks during World War One in London, England? Uh, who knew about the American history uh, from a black perspective here in the U.S. of A. or anywhere in this world? Uh, America fighting for independence in the 1700s. Well, slavery had a lot to do about that, about them wanting to be independent of Britain's rule in the 1700s. Um, Because the world was ending the slave trade. Slave trade was becoming uh, extinct throughout the world. This new country, wasn't willing to go along with that. They had to get their freedom. So again, uh, the 1700s, this country sought its freedom, political freedom. And um, we wanted to continue slavery. William Wilberforce was from the UK, and he fought to end the slave trade. Uh, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, uh, a uh, British person. And he was fighting very hard to end slave trade. And uh, America at that time was beginning a new type of slavery called the Peculiar Institution. Now, why did they call it the Peculiar Institution? Well, it became known as chattel slavery, which meant 
that one was held in slavery for life and perpetuity. Not only you, but all your descendants, anyone born to you, was automatically born into slavery in perpetuity. That is, ladies and gentlemen, forever. Whereas some parts of the world, uh, some individuals could buy their way out of slavery or slavery had a time limit, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, etc. But the worst type of slavery was to be, was in the peculiar institution, which led the slavery here into the United States when the importation of slaves was outlawed. They started breeding slaves. So you had a number of plantations here in the United States that were breeding uh, factories. Uh, And the British, uh, although they were discontinuing, they thought it was a good idea to have a colony to continue uh, with the slavery as 90% of the plantations in the United States were owned by Brits. They were absentee landowners. But uh, the, quote, founding fathers had ideas of their own, didn't want to cut the Brits in for a slice of the action, didn't like them owning 90% of the plantations here in the U.S. of A. So the American Revolution came about um, as a result of the question over slavery. And one of the first things that the slavers did uh, in order to continue slavery was to make friends with their very own black folks who were known as the Moors at that particular time. It's M-O-O-R-S. And these were the first black folks that they enslaved uh, they were the first, the Moors were the first to enslave Christians, white Christians. Now, I know you're asking, where are we getting this information from? Well, that's easy, folks, as I've been exhorting all along. Our very own white abolitionists gave us that information. Uh, Senator Charles Sumner, uh, a senator who was beaten on the floor of the Senate over revealing a lot of information, beaten within an inch of his life on the Senate floor. You're wondering why uh, so many schools, black schools, are named Sumner. Well, it's after Senator Charles Sumner. And uh, Senator Charles Sumner wrote a book, and he entitled his book, The White Slaves and the Barbary States, Exposing the Truth About Slavery here in the United States of America. 
as I indicated, bringing out the truth or trying to, attempting to tell the truth, caused him a beatdown on the Senate floor. Here again, a lot of this information is available to you. The Gist of Freedom Facebook page via Leslie Gist, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Gist, G-I-S-T. Send her a free uh, friend request. You can also subscribe to her blog, The Gist of Freedom. Be kept up to date on future shows coming up. Um, But you will get information about the Barbary Pirates, for example. I'm going to give you a little clip from... uh, the book, White Slaves and the Barbary Coast. And um, the Barbary pirates were a band of Moorish brigands that were protected and encouraged by the coastal cities of northern Africa, including Algiers, Tunis, Jarba, and Tripoli. Not only did they plunder, plunder the cargo of merchant ships, that they took all of the Christian passengers hostage and either ransomed them or sold them as slaves. That's from the book by Senator Charles Sumner. Now, some of us want to sanitize our role in slavery. It seems that the Moors were used for their intellect as well as their immorality. We have to claim all of our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can read Sumner's book online. Uh, Just go to Google, put in Charles Sumner, put in the book title, and uh, that book is available online. Again, the white slaves in the Barbary states. Uh, where Mr. Uh, Sumner is laying out uh, the, uh, the facts of the slavery and how the early United States, uh, the politicals, uh, used that to establish slavery here in the United States. Um Moving, uh, while we're getting up some uh, more information about that, uh, we're noticing that politicos here in 2013 exerting their power to shut down the government. Um, Right now, I just heard that they have uh, wanted to bring uh, President uh, Obama to the table to talk about a six-week reopening partial reopening for six weeks of the uh, of the shutdown to put the government back into full force. However, I'm sure Obama might look up on that favorably as long as it does not include any defunding of the uh, Affordable Care Act. 
Um, getting back uh, about the Moors and Jefferson. Uh, and an act of secession uh, during the day. And again, we're still looking that information up. Uh, okay. Yeah, the shutdown that we've been talking about. And... Uh, that could be seen as an act of secession. You know, uh, after 9-11, uh, we came here in the United States so concerned about our government being taken down by terrorists, outside terrorists. And lo and behold, our government has been taken down by a small minority within the Republican Party known as the Tea Party. Mr. House Leader, Mr. Boehner, has uh, proven to be inadequate to mandate any control over this small secessionist party within his party. And they have come and, and taken our government, shut it down, and I saw here, in reference to that shutdown, that uh, survivor benefits of American soldiers who were lost in combat, their uh, benefactors, their descendants, beneficiaries, uh, payment was held up, and a private organization here in the United States has committed itself to make those payments to the beneficiaries of soldiers who had given up their life in combat. Uh, okay. I want to, um, again, direct um, the audience's attention to... Um, Okay, folks, excuse me here. I've had a technical glitch. Here we go. Now, I want to quote here. After the United States won its independence in the Treaty of 1783, it had to protect its own commerce against dangers such as the Barbary Pirates. As early as 1784, Congress followed the tradition of the European shipping powers and appropriated $80,000 as tribute to the Barbary states, directing its ministers in Europe, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, to begin negotiations with them. Trouble began the next year in July 1785, when Algerians captured two slave American ships, or American ships believed to be slave ships, and the people of Algiers held their crews of 21 people for a ransom 
of nearly $60,000. And here in a minute, uh, do we have someone on the line? Picking up some chatter. Someone on the line there? Okay. Now, I want to end uh, in closing talking about uh, uh, Christopher Columbus and what Sumner had to say about him. While the boundless discoveries of Columbus giving to Castle and Aragon a new world, he found time to direct an exposition into Africa under the military command of that great ecclesiastic, Cardinal Zemines. It is recorded that this valiant soldier of the church, when effecting the conquest of Oran in 1509 and the inexpressible satisfaction of liberating upwards of 300 Christian slaves, Columbus had proved himself unfit to govern the newly acquired territory by treating the conquered Indians as slaves, and this map bit called forth the severest condemnation from Jimenez. After he became regent, further information of slavery reached Spain, and he took strong measures to repress it. He drew up a code of instructions for the well-being of the natives and used every effort to shield them from oppression and convert them to the Christian faith. Cardinal Jimenez took a prominent part in the efforts made for the spiritual welfare of the Spanish possessions in America and organized a band of missionaries for the evangelization of the New World. That's what Charles Sumner uh, had to say about Christopher Columbus and his relationship to slavery. Again, thank you for tuning in for, uh, to the Gist of Freedom. I've been your host, Preston Washington, coming to you out of Kansas City, Missouri. And I um, want you to uh, join us this Sunday for the talk about the film, 12 Years a Slave, and our guest will be Clayton Adams, who is a descendant of the author, Solomon Northrup. That's N-O-R-T-H-U-P. Uh, please join us. Look up Solomon's, uh, Northrup's uh, book online. And uh, it is available. And... Uh, Please join us to hear what his descendant, Clayton Adams, has to say in reference to his uh, ancestor, Solomon Northrup, 12 years in slavery. And it's a movie coming out, I think around October 18th, produced by Steve McQueen, actor and producer. Good night, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on The Kiss of Freedom. Thank you.